The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange traded funds, you are in the right place. Every week we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, we're delving into the launch of the first ever Ether Futures ETF following the SEC's approval of the new products over the weekend. That's ahead, of course, that government shutdown deadline. Another win for crypto bulls, but this is necessarily bode well for the broader spot crypto ETF approval. We'll also take a look at the fourth quarter for the markets ahead and get a sense of where the search for yield is heading going into the end of the year. Here's my conversation with Brian Lake, the global head of ETF solutions at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Todd Zone ETF and technical strategist at Strategus Securities, and Simeon Hyman, head of investment strategy at ProShares. Simon, today you've got launched three new ETFs right here at the NYSE. ProShares Ether Strategy ETF. E-E-T-H there. I did the symbol for you. There you go. Good for you. Tell us about what's going on here. Now, this is Ether Futures, similar to Bitcoin Futures, but explain what's going on. Just like we launched with Bitto two years ago, had a lot of success, $2 billion in flows, top 5% of volume on the exchange. We know that futures regulated futures market in an ETF is a great solution. Today, we launched that in the Ether space, EETH. It's ProShares Ether Strategy ETF. And then we launched two combos, BETAE, which is the Bitcoin Ether Equal Weight, and BETH, which is Bitcoin Ether Market Cap Weight. So we have a full suite of crypto solutions with the largest crypto ETF provider. Yeah, I remember I had you here the day we launched BITO. It is the biggest uh, Bitcoin futures ETF that's out there. Speaking of Bitcoin futures ETF, I've got to ask you about where the Bitcoin future, the spot one is. We all know what happened. Uh, the SEC lost the grayscale case. Uh, Gary Gensler had 45 days to appeal that. We're sort of waiting for them to make a decision. Uh, w- w- what's going on with the spot Bitcoin ETF right now? Yeah, I-, I think none of us know exactly where that's going to take or how long it would take or what form that would be when it's all said and done. What we know is the futures ETFs are here today. And what's important about that is that regulated futures market, it resolves a lot of the challenges as the spot market is maturing. All the news we saw the last year or so with the exchanges and those things, ultimately they'll mature. But in the meantime, a future solution is there and it works real well. Bitto, two years out. Yeah. Since its inception, 3% off spot Bitcoin. Most of that is fee and nothing is free to invest in. So it works really Todd, well. Grayscale won the case against uh, the SEC. Basically, the court said, you guys approved a Bitcoin futures ETF. They are like products. You prove that, you got to approve a spot Bitcoin. Now they've got an Ether futures ETF. Is is the implication here that there's a good chance of getting a spot Ether and a spot Bitcoin? Mm. Or am I stretching this? You would think so. It's a matter of time, right? And the way I'm looking at this with the, the, in, the indulge of product that's come to the market is it's rare when you get a new asset class, right, to enter into the ETF lexicon. We've had equities for some time. We have bonds, commodities. Crypto seems to be the next step. It may not be for everyone, given the volatility involved, but I can understand from an issuer's perspective why you'd want to try and take advantage of that market. We'll see how the asset class performs, but again, this is a new area for everyone to get involved into. So I think that's why you're seeing such popularity uh, with all these releases. 
Brian, you want to handicap the odds of a, a spot Bitcoin ETF that may be a little out of your ballpark? But you're an old ETF watcher. You've been around a long, long time. You know this game. I think it will happen. I don't know when. Okay. Very politic of you. All right. <laughs> I'm not going to let you. We're going to go back to the. I'm not going to give up on the spot Bitcoin. <laughs> Guys, this is, people like this story too much here. But let me turn to you. Uh, big inflows continuing. Uh, into money market and short-term treasury ETFs. Uh, investors are loving these 5% yields. You can't get them to stop talking about it. They seem very happy to stay in their 5% treasury yields. But now we've been seeing inflows into short-term investment grade, corporate bonds recently. Yep. You've got this ultra-short income ETF, JPST. That's getting inflows. I- I'm a little puzzled about this. What's the appeal of corporates, even short-term corporates, over treasuries? Different risk ratio here. Yeah, well, when you look at kind of peak cash levels like this, it tends to be the worst performing asset class once you stretch out over time because everything else kind of does better. And so the ultra short space is actually really interesting right now. You can do what we call step out of cash and you're able to incorporate with an investment grade that's now our PM was emailing me over the weekend. He's buying paper 5.8, 6.2%. Your SEC yield on on JPST right now is 5.38%. That's a nice step out of cash. Um, right now versus like the ag, for example, Bob, ag, you're getting 108% of the yield with only 10% of the duration. And so that's actually a pretty attractive place to to kind of hang out in these markets. And of course, ag is the, the, the biggest bond ETF out there. Oh, the way the Vanguard total bond, I think is bigger, right, Todd? Vanguard total bond is bigger they're, than ag. They're, they're neck and neck around 90, low 90s. I'm waiting for one of them to hit 100 billion, actually. Yeah, that'd be a big, for the first big story. Anyhow, it, his point is ag is sort of the, the whole bond market. Uh, essentially, right. but you've got 5.3% on this JPST investment grade debt, but the risks are higher. This is what I don't get. Corporate debt has higher risk than government debt, right? You all know that. So what's the advantage of having Some corporates of the over, over treasuries? than the U.S. government right now. Uh, we're only taking on six-month duration, and so we've got it nice and tight in there. So you've got, you've got very attractive credit quality. We've got an active manager that's individually selecting each of the bonds that are going into the portfolio, which I think particularly on the fixed income side is a, is a very differentiated proposition. And this product's got a ton of track record. It's been out for over five years. It's the second largest active ETF uh, in the world. Um, so we think JPST is a great place to, to, to be looking right now. Boy, what a surprise. He likes his product. Is this a permanent <laughs> change in consumer investing behavior? I'm a little worried about this. Our bond funds, you know, you, you people love these things. They're, are they going to pose serious competition for investor dollars? I mean, they haven't for decades, and yet everyone keeps messaging me, hey, Bob, we're happy at our 5%, two, you know, yield 2%, real yield. We don't care about the stock market. As long as you're in this higher for longer environment, this is candy, especially after not having it for 10 plus years during the QE era. You now just put a bowl of M&Ms in front of a child who can get that 5%. I think that's the analogy I like to use. Um, I, I also think a big understatement is that when you go out on the curve, you're getting equity-like volatility in a bond product, right? TLT has the same standard deviation as the S&P 500 roughly right now. So. I think that's why you're seeing all this money go to money market funds or short duration products. TLT like is the 20 plus year right, bond. Right. Those so, of you don't understand his clipped way of speaking English. Duration makes sense when the Fed is done hiking in anticipation of cuts. But if no cuts are coming, I don't think you want that volatility. It's not, it's not fun to sit in. I'd rather see be in that short duration treasury or corporate like. And what uh, about the old pitch? Oh, active management. Have you heard this story before? Active management can move a lot quicker. We've heard, here we go, active management. So. Active management, I think, is much more 
comfortable in a bond wrapper, right, than an equity wrapper. Beating the S&P 500 is tough enough. Beating the AG is different because the AG doesn't have high yield in it, I believe, or it's a limited amount of high yield. So there's more opportunities to outperform when you're active, and especially going across different dur- the whole duration spectrum. Yeah. Bob, you'll like this. We think of active management versus passive management as black and white TV and color TV, and it's exactly to the point that was just made. A passive index is just going to give you just that. It's the duration of the index. There's no security selection. You're going to drift with duration, whereas active management can pull in not only... Do, do you agree with his point that active is better served in a bond wrapper than in an equities wrapper? I think active management on the fixed income side is a very compelling story, particularly given the way that passive fixed income and benchmarks are constructed. So that's a yes? That's a, that's a <laughs> yes that, I, that, that active management I'm trying to get a JP Morgan a, guide a, a to admit the bond funds are, are, are better in an active well, it's great. You know, the reason I, ask it that, I answer it that way is because I, I want to make sure that we're framing it the right way. When we're saying versus the field, I think that's a difficult thing to say. I think, I think good active management can absolutely provide a tremendous amount of value. We, we just to give, give you our bona fides, we've got over 1,000 active managers. We spend $400 million a year on research. We're putting good active management into this, and it depends on the outcome that you're trying to deliver, right? So we just launched a product last week. I know you make fun of me for launching products, but we're doing this on behalf of investors. We're listening to investors. What do they want to see in the marketplace? So we launched hedge, hedged equity laddered overlay. The ticker, wait for it, is H-E-L-O, pronounced hello. Uh, so we've got cardboard cutouts of Adele around the office because she's got a great song, Hello, from the other side, right? And, um, and this is designed to give you two-thirds the upside of the S&P with only half the, half the volatility. Maybe an attractive product for the markets, like you're saying. Maybe we grind to the end of the year a little bit here, and this is a way to stay invested for the long run. He just sold us his new product. Hello, H-E-L-O. Hello. You got it in. Very good. He's so media trained, it's annoying. <laughs> it really is. Now, you've been around a long time. you have any thoughts on this Treasury craziness? I mean, if you, their point is if you think inflation is going to cool off this quarter, the, the risk-reward in Treasuries is pretty good right now. There, right? there are opportunities, but it doesn't have to be active per se. Rules-based strategies <laughs> that do things that aren't exactly the same as the index can add value. For us... We have an ETF ticker, IGHG. It's investment-grade, interest-rate hedged corporate bonds. What's cool about it is it takes that spread and staples it to Fed funds. In effect, you're actually getting about 6.5% yield staying in corporates, but you have zero Treasury interest rate risk. You can do that in an ETF. It used to be called credit ARB. You can do it in an index. So it doesn't have to be active in the capital A sense. Does it bother you that these these ETF products are getting more and more complicated? I used to have a hard time explaining covered call strategies. Now I, I got to explain even more complicated those, products. Those are the hedged interest rate products are fascinating to me. They have done phenomenal since we've had liftoff of the interest rate cycle. But to your point, it's a little bit more complicated than a simple treasury ETF. But I do agree with Simeon that it, it, they've done fantastic. They're a great way to hedge out the duration risk for now until we see cuts whenever that comes. So you just heard both of these guys have new products that they're selling. And here's something interesting. 69 ETFs launched in September. That is the largest ETF launch in history. That's according to Todd, who actually (laughs) watches this thing. Kind of sad, isn't it? That's what he does for a living. (laughs) What happened? Is that true? This is the largest number of ETF launches in history we had? This is true. We had a... um, a handful of launches from a few different families, right? And this is the acknowledgement of the ETF space from legacy fund providers 
boutique RAs who maybe have a separately managed account they want to put in an ETF. There's the day trading crowd, right? Those issues who want to cater to them. And it's all coming together right now. The ETF industry is 30 years old, but based on launches, it feels much younger than that. I don't know if this number will get broken again. Um, I think it's reasonable that it can, especially if some more legacy providers but, come in, but, but it should but continue. It, it's the start of the fourth quarter. Wouldn't it make some sense, Brian, that you, know, you try to launch a bunch of ETFs now before the end of the year? Does that? Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a push to get things done. Obviously, we'll be able to clip a, a one-year um, performance number quicker this way in the sense, obviously not a one-year, but get a calendar uh, year. So you t- sometimes do see some seasonality in launches. I think it's great for investors. You now have more variety to build the perfect portfolio for what you're exactly trying to achieve. Where the difficulty is, is you've got to sift through more of these to find uh, to find the right ones. But variety is good. It, 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 variety is good, but it's also confusing. I can't. A lot of these products I can't explain on television. It's really hard. I have to think very carefully, and it takes 30 seconds to do it. And even then, you're not sure about exactly about the use case. Is there a trend at anything that's going on here? Uh, what? What, you know, what, what's happening in these products? Because we know ETFs follow trends, for example. Remember yeah. when thematic tech was a big thing in 2016 and 2017? Thematic tech, hedge equity, to, to, to Byron's part, um, no. is popular. Managing downside risk, I think, might be the ah, proper way to put that it. That makes sense. Especially because when you look at the demographics of asset management, there is a lot of folks close to retirement with a lot of money, and they want to protect that. And they still want their equity risk, though, right? That makes sense to me. Um, and I would also just point out, we've, we just had a record launch month, like you said. But there are still about two or three times as many equity neutral funds as equity ETFs. So while it may feel saturated and confusing, we're nowhere near where that space currently yeah. is. There's room See, to run. Th- this makes perfect sense to me, what he said. O- older people interested in hedge products. So I'm the classic baby boomer. I'm almost 68. I am the classic baby boomer. 56 and 57 were the two biggest years for the baby boomers. And I have friends down here who said, Bob, we, we, people in our age group, when you're heading towards 70, you can't have another down 20% year. That's kind of risky. You've got to de-risk in terms of your equity exposure at that point. So the, the, the rise of these hedged products make a lot of sense for baby boomers who want to sit there and say, well, I'm not that dumb. I'm not going to sit there in 5% treasuries. That's too little risk, but I got to have some exposure to equities. Therefore, I'll give up some upside risk. There's Jeppy. You haven't gotten an ad for Jeppy. He hasn't talked about Jeppy yet. I can't believe it. But the, uh, there, that makes a, there's a product that makes sense for the times. Yeah, but Bob, you just said you couldn't explain the strategy on TV, and you literally just did a better job than I did. That's exactly well, what Jeppy Hello was. Well, Jeppy is basically that strategy. Well, but Jeppy gives you the covered call, so you're selling yeah, a little bit of By the way, the say outside. what Jeppy is, so you explain it to Jeppy the viewers. Is, Jeppy is a covered call strategy on a basket of quality securities. The idea to give you a premium income, so you're getting the dividend from the other line plus the option premium that comes along with it. Right. Yielding. yielding. So you're collecting, you're, you're collecting a premium, but you're giving up some of the upside. So this works great in a year, in the second half of the year, where we're having troubles. There you've got a strategy that works. But in an up market, you are giving up upside. In a, in a, a covered call strategy is going to struggle in a straight up market. Yes, because you've given up some of that upside, you're going to be clipped on that. If you think we're going into a straight up market right now, maybe it's not the strategy for you. My, my view is we're going to grind a little bit to the, to the end of the year here, probably be pretty range bound. Jeppy and its NASDAQ cousin JEPQ, J-E-P-Q is the other ticker. 
both of those seem to be really optimally positioned right now. You got any other one, JEPQ. So you're going to hit the whole, you're making your PR people got very whole, happy the whole, over here. the whole family here. Uh, but, this is, but this is innovation, right? Think about like another industry. So if, if we went to Ford Motor Company and you said, why are you innovating with these seat belts and the, all these airbags? You, of course you are, because it's better for the, the end consumer of those. And that's how we think about it. You know, we think about fiduciary active management. What are things that we can put into these uh, products to help investors get better outcomes? Did he just call me an airbag? I think he just did. What happened there? No, you're the seatbelt you in that analogy. You're the, you're the driver. You're I driving wanna, this car. Look how fast he recovered on that. Very good. Um, I want to return to uh, get more out of you on the Ether features. Yep. Uh, you got two other products that you launched today. Uh, these are both of them have exposure to the returns on Bitcoin and Ether. Now this it, intrigued me. I why do we need the combination of them? What is it? What do you? What are, what's the appeal here? We, we've launched BETE, which is Bitcoin and Ether equal weight, and BETH, which is market cap weighted. Look, they are the one and two. These are the two largest cryptocurrencies. If you want exposure to both, you know you want exposure to both. Made a lot of sense to launch uh, launch the combined products. There's two slightly different things, and we don't. We could talk about this for hours. Bitcoin fixed supply, ether not fixed surprise, fixed supply. Ether gives you exposure to the Ethereum ecosystem. Bitcoin is proof of uh, is proof of work, and ether is proof of stake. We got all sorts of little things here. Bottom line: the one and two cryptocurrencies offering them combined for folks who want one-stop shopping. I think shopping the major thing sense. to me is, and the reason I like ethers is. DeFi in general, but smart contract concepts, too, that seem to matter a lot, which is a very different concept than when you're dealing with Bitcoin, there's, right? There's so many aspects to this, you know, whether it's whether it's your, and, and the way it can work in a portfolio, whether you view it as, as digital gold, whether you view it as as a uh, alpha satellite, what we know is the correlations are low to, to uh, stocks and bonds. And that's super important because we know correlations in traditional asset classes are going to one rapidly for everything. Uh, even stocks and bonds often do the same thing. And having uncorrelated asset class is very important. Yeah. Um, I just want to move on and talk about a couple of other things. It, I, I think the key point here is you're almost acting like you you want a diversification in stocks, and if you have, if you're in the crypto universe, you almost want a diversification a little bit in, in the two biggest ones here. That's what it seems like. It's maturing. It's a sign of maturation to me. Absolutely, and they, they don't. Obviously, Bitcoin and Ether are more correlated to one another um, than they are to traditional asset classes. But for sure, it makes a lot of sense to have exposure to both the number one and number two cryptocurrencies. Todd, I look at the, the top inflows this year. Mm -hmm. I see the S&P 500, usual, yeah. IVV, VOO, these are the S&P 500 funds. They keep getting inflows. Uh, I also see an awful lot of bond funds in here, 20 plus year treasuries, uh, short term, zero to three month treasuries, total bond, BND, all big inflows. Um, your thoughts as we enter Q4 here, what, what ETFs are going to be working in Q4? So I, uh, the inflow list, you know, it's your typical who's who, right? Folks allocating as they need to. I, drilling down, I'm watching more equally weighted ETFs. You know, your, your equal weight S&P 500, RSP, equal weight Russell 1000, uh, EQAL, because that's key for market participation and durability. We, we know the influence of the top five or top 10 stocks. I need to make sure that the bench is being involved in the market here. I want to keep an eye on semiconductors, XSD, SOXX, uh, and housing as well, ITB. That's, I think those would be good tells on the strength of the underlying economy. Things seem pretty good. But those have 
consolidated here after a pretty rough quarter. So I, I do, I do want to keep tabs on those sellers. I'm looking at Lennar over here. Lennar had yeah. a great earnings, talking about housing ETFs, had a great report September 15th. Uh, Stuart Miller, business is good. They're taking business away from existing home sales because the high rates, people are sticking with their mortgage. They don't want to move. Yeah. The report was great. They beat on the top and bottom. And stocks, it's been straight down because you can't fight the macro here. When you get a rise in yields this rapid, investors say, sell consumer discretion or sell autos, sell Lenar. We don't care what, the, what everybody's saying right now. And it's, it's really kind of sad to see. Uh, generally, business has been good, and yet they're acting like business is going to be terrible. This uh, most recent leg up in interest rates around the world has caused more agitation um, than the entire year, really. You're, now you're starting to see the more cyclically oriented areas underperform, yeah. whereas for most of the year, they were in pretty decent shape. So we're seeing new lows today on all the big utility ETFs, all the big REIT ETFs, that you might expand, a lot of the bonds to new lows, but I'll give you an example of the effect of larger interest rates. Uh, the biotech ETF just yeah. hit a new low because funding costs for, for, for all of this stuff goes up. So this is a good example of how it affects the, virtually the entire ecosystem of, of investing in the United States. The biotech ETF has been, was it IBB, has been affected by That impacts by small caps too because they have a heavy presence in Russell 2000. So... You can't buy biotech, you can't buy small caps then. You gotta just stay up to scale and quality. All right. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. We'll be continuing the conversation with Simeon Hyman from ProShare. Simeon, thanks for sticking around. You launched the Ether Futures ETF today. Uh, how is it trading? Trading really nicely. The volume's strong and the spreads are tight. So we're very pleased with the trading today of uh, ticker EETH. The most important thing is those tight spreads. Uh, people were concerned that there would be some deviation somehow between the, the, the back when BITO launched the Bitcoin uh, and uh, a, a spread. There would be wider spreads between the spot and the futures, particularly when it rolled over, but that hasn't occurred. But it makes some sense. These are financial products. They're not commodities where you can get irregularities sometimes. Right, so two things. So one, I was mentioning just the trading spreads today, yeah. which are really tight. But what you're referencing is very important too, the learnings that we had from BITO, the largest crypto ETF. BITO's been out for two years, $2 billion in flows, top 5% of trading volume. And what we learned from BITO is that a futures-based ETF can track spot really, really nicely. Exactly as you described it, it's a financial future. There's no storage costs, there's no oil in, in cargo ships around the world. So therefore, this is the important little nuance here, so we're in podcast, I get my extra 30 seconds. The roll cost of a financial future should be pretty darn close to short-term interest rates. And remember that in these ETFs, whether it's BITO or EETH, we're holding all the cash because these are just, they're not leveraged products. We're just delivering $1 of exposure for $1 invested. So that means if that cost of the roll is pretty darn close to the short-term interest rate, you just earn it on the cash and boom, the tracking is there. Two years since the uh, launch of BITO, we're 3% off spot. Most of it's fee. There's no way to invest for free. It works. So what, what's the implication of higher rates 
on, on the role of these products. Does that matter <clears throat> at all higher interest It rates? shouldn't matter at all for the role because you just get it back in the return on cash. So that's, that's really key because some folks have been looking at the crypto's futures market and they say, wow, the roll costs went up. Yeah, of course, short-term interest rates went up as we all know, but you earn that right back on the cash so it doesn't matter. Tell me about, uh, I know your reticence to get involved in speculation on the Bitcoin futures, uh, excuse me, the spot Bitcoin ETF, but it seems like SEC Chair Gary Gensler is in a very difficult position. Grayscale won the case. They said, you approved Bitcoin futures. Those are like products. You approve that one. You're going to have to approve this one. He hasn't announced whether he's going to appeal yet, and yet it seems like there's really, I, I'm, figure, I'm trying to figure out one what new grounds can he introduce to say that he's not approving a, 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 a spot Bitcoin ETF at this point? His choices seem to be narrowing. Yeah, I, we don't have a crystal ball, at least I don't. So, you know, trying to figure out where this will go, it's going to take some time at the very least. That much we know. Um, what we also do know, though, is that the regulated futures market is kind of a cool place. That's my technical term. It's a cool place. What's nice about it, as opposed to the spot exchanges that have had all this stuff going on with them in the news flow, futures, regulated, CME, clearinghouse, it's all got that regulated thing over there. So it, it's a mature place. The spot market is still fluid a little bit, if you will. I'm curious about what happened with these, eth these Ethereum futures. So in the past, I, I recall some time ago, you, you had filed and a bunch of other people had filed and they basically told you to withdraw. Didn't they? This happened a little while ago, right? And and now you filed, and it looks like it's going to. It got approval. So did something happen here? Or? I don't know what what the what the precise path of that was, but we just are certainly pleased for. And you have to use the word allow. Allow is not approved. So uh, that these ETFs were allowed to come to market. And uh, as again, from the experience of Bitto, we know the solution works. And we were super, super happy to be able to bring these three ETFs to market today. You know, when I talk to people about ProShares, you guys are sort of the envy of the ETF world because you run a whole suite. You run the largest suite of leverage and inverse products out there. And they all have fees that are the envy of the ETF world, 70, 80, 90 basis points. Uh, up there. I, I think your uh, largest product is the uh, Ultra Pro, the Triple Q, Ultra Pro. TQQQ. Yeah. Uh, 16 billion in assets, 86 basis points. That's uh, quite a hefty fee structure you get every single year. It's amazing about these leverage and inverse products because they always show up among the heaviest traded products that are out there, even amongst equities in terms of the dollar value, even share value, no matter what you look at, they show up. What, what is it about these products that still has a certain amount of appeal, even though, in theory, they're tiny. They're 2% of the ETF universe, essentially, and yet they, they have outsized influence. Look, they, they offer a very important solution to investors, whether it's to get exposure with less capital at risk or whether it's to hedge your portfolio. Uh, they resonate with folks, and they do a good job for them. Yeah, it's... It, you know, there's, there's been arguments for years that these kinds of leverage and inverse products sort of constitute a separate universe and that it's, there should be a separate product classification um, for them. Does ProShares have any opinion about that? I think the only thing I would just share with you is folks 
At ProShares.com, we have lots of educational material. We want to make sure that folks can avail themselves of that. You got any thoughts about where we're going in the fourth quarter? You put on your old ETF, your old ETF watcher. I know you're a smart guy on the markets too. Um, what are wh where are we going to be heading in the fourth quarter? We're trading at a multiple that's very consistent with four and a half odd percent ten-year Treasury yield. But as an old mentor of mine uh, told me back in the day. The problem with averages is you can have one hand in boiling, scalding water and the other half in a pile of ice and say you're okay on average. There's a wide disparity of, of valuations in the marketplace. Tech's still trading at 35 times. But the problem is on the deep value side, if you're not getting any growth, you might as well be a bond. So I think in the fourth quarter, quality growth strategies that have been left behind in the first half are probably going to have a day. Yeah, this word quality shows up a lot. Uh, you said uh, trading at valuations consistent with 4 to 5% yields. The S&P's current valuation is between 17 and 18. It's high 17s right now. That's about his, 17 is about an historic average that we've got right now. Yeah, you always got to put in the context of interest rates. You could tolerate a 20 times trailing with, uh, with a 4.5% 10-year uh, treasury. But again, We've got a market where there's a bunch of stuff at 35, and then the problem with the stuff that's 15 times is if there's no growth there, that's a, that's a value trap, if you will. It's a value trap. Simeon, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Simeon Hyman is the head of investment strategy at ProShares, and thank you, everyone, for listening to the ETF Edge podcast. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.